Hello, and welcome to Broadening the Narrative. This is a podcast where I talk to people who are broadening the narratives I was taught within white evangelicalism. I'm your host, Nikki Pappas. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm so glad you're here. My first memoir, As Familiar as Family, is now available to purchase on my website at NikkiPappas.com. I'll share more about this at the end so we can get to today's episode. On today's episode of Broadening the Narrative, I'm joined by hip-hop artist and poet Sequena Murray, also known as Bandy. If you've been listening to the podcast from the beginning, you may already know that Sequena is a four-time returning guest. She was the very first guest on season one with her episode about intersectionality. Her episode in season two was about reparations. In season three, we discussed mental health. And today... On this episode, we will be talking about massage and noir. So thank you for coming on to the podcast again, Sequina. How are you today? I know we were just chatting about that. So yeah, anything you want to say about how you're doing? Yeah. Um, I, I definitely, I have um, a bunch of different uh, emotions that I'm kind of processing right now. Um just in the wake of the recent events that have happened in in Buffalo and in California. Um, and, you know, just kind of still filtering out just, just how I feel. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's a lot right now. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Before recording, just, you know, we were talking just, you know, I was saying that when we talked in season two, your episode, we recorded on January 6th, the day of the insurrection and white supremacist violence. And here we are uh, a little over a year later and still the same things, which the country was founded on and which we'll be talking about today. And so just the, the never ending violence of white supremacy that is bent on destroying everyone even. Yeah. Like the more I learn, the more I see like, yeah. In the short term, white person who's buying into the lies of white supremacy, you think it's benefiting you, but it's, it's bent on destroying you too. Um, Yeah. So definitely with everything that has happened in the recent days and lives lost, just holding space for that as we have this conversation. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Well, to start us off, could you share a little more about yourself and your background, your pronouns, and anything you think would be beneficial for setting our foundation tonight? Sure. So for those who don't already know about me, my name is Sequina, but I also go by the stage name of Bandy. I am a single divorced mom of four beautiful children, originally from Charleston, South Carolina. I am a former Army Reservist. I served eight years honorably there, and I'm also a hip-hop artist, currently working on my debut album, Bandy's Notebook Volume 1. I am a queer, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And lastly, um, just with the main topic, for this evening being misogynoir, I thought it would be good to reference the person who coined the term, uh, Dr. Moya Bailey. And here is a quote from her from an interview posted in 2021. And it reads, misogynoir talks about the specific anti-Black misogyny that Black women experience. There's something that I think is synergistic about the way racism and sexism come together that isn't just additive. Misogynoir speaks to this uniquely generative force that creates these representations of Black women that are very problematic in both digital and in general popular culture. Mm. Yes, thank you for that that background there. Yeah, that's so good to credit the Black feminist, Dr. Moya Bailey, <laughs> for coining the term and then to provide that context for what exactly we're talking about, that massage noir is kind of, you know, even like jumping back to your episode on intersectionality in season one, right? Like 
how black women live at the intersections of the misogyny, but the added layer of being black women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, when I had reached out to you about this episode, it was with everything happening with the Oscars and Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith. And at the same time, everything happening with the Supreme court nomination process and what we were seeing happening there. So I really had reached out to you because I was seeing things you were tweeting and I just value what you have to say about this topic. So with the misogynoir against Jada Pinkett Smith and Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who was confirmed as a justice for the Supreme Court. So woo-woo. Uh, but yeah, so with that misogynoir that's been on display so publicly, mm-hmm. could you talk about the misogyny that Black women face? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's definitely, it's, it's woo-woo and then it's whoo. <laughs> it just feels like, um, like Black women just can't catch a break. Um, as Malcolm X put it, um, and I first heard this quote about like two or so years ago, two years ago or so, like, and he said, the most disrespected woman in America is the black woman. Um, and, you know, we are mimicked, we are mocked, we, we aren't given room to have faults um, faults or flaws or softness. We were brutalized. Um, the life expectancy of a black trans woman today is 35 years old. We are not believed and our pain often gets diminished. Black women are anywhere from two to five times more likely to die from pregnancy and postpartum related con- conditions um, than white women. We're sexualized, we're not seen as beautiful. Um, the doll test, which was originated by Kenneth and Mamie Clark in 1947, revealed um, how black children often see and value themselves in a white dominated society, um, despite being the most educated group in the US. The wage gap passes making an average of 68 cents for every dollar um, the white men make compared to black men who make an average of about 87 cents on a dollar. So in essence, we move mountains and yet we reap mustard seeds. Yeah. I just want to give some space to sit with all of that the compounded nature of it, the history of it, the centuries long dehumanization that is still happening. Things that we haven't faced, confronted uh, as a nation for white Americans to go deeper, to dismantle, to commit to, honoring black women yeah so thanks for sharing all of that yeah and then you know as I said like these are very what we're seeing now on a public stage all the things you're saying are things happening very privately every day again for centuries So with the public nature, though, of what we've seen, how has that kind of on a national stage, seeing how these Black women have been treated, how has that impacted you personally? Yeah, so like just this whole debacle of events just happening back to back, it it struck a particularly raw nerve with me. Like I just, I felt a wave of mixed emotions from feeling flabbergasted to feeling gaslit to feeling unshocked to feeling angry to feeling validated um all at the same time it was just a lot um and for judge jackson like i just i just wanted to hug her and 
to tell her that I saw her, um, to just to just stand in solidarity, just knowing full well that pain of having men belittle you and then twist information just enough to cause a flurry with their respective audiences, despite the truth being front and center. Um, you know, just knowing the feeling of just not having any wiggle room for mistakes or missteps, even though you deserve it just like the next person, just as much as them. Um, to have to wear the strong woman cape because this part of your journey demands no less than that. To be qualified and overqualified, have people tell you how wonderful you are, shake your hand, just to knock the wind out of you with the other one. And I just, I cried for Judge Jackson because I was reminded of just how much this world despises us and will ruthlessly try to drain us without a second thought. Um, and for Jada, like just the, the crafty bullying, it just felt so familiar to me um, with men clothing rudeness as harmless jokes. Um, and regardless of how the other person receives it, um, those men taking advantage of the onlookers who may not be as keen to their patterns of, of how they may have treated that person over time. Um, and it kind of giving them more power over how things are interpreted and, and, and their actions being seen as isolated and harmless. Um, and, you know, in the end, it just kind of makes the bully appear as the victim. And mm -hmm. then they're free to just keep bullying as they please going from setting to setting. And it's just an endless cycle. You know, like who who's typically not believed? Black women who are typically the butt of jokes, black women and in our bully enabling society that seems to. Um, be afraid of nuance and critical thinking. Everything in that situation with Jada worked the way that it should have. And seeing all of what happened with her play out and the public discourse that followed, it just, it made me very disappointed, um, especially with the men in the black community whom I either have like direct personal or parasocial relationships with um, that I, respected um you know the, the those same men defended were defending chris rock and and um oh it was just a joke and i got into discussions with like black men over um over this and i was just really blown away with how much i had to try to prove that our pain as black women even existed um one person even went as far as like saying that I should consider balding black men in their pain, like completely like just it, it, dismissing anything that I had said. And in a nutshell, what it was was just black men affirming with other black men that their takes in defense of Chris or Will were validated. Um, meanwhile, they were dismissing and ignoring the black women who were trying desperately to get them to listen to them. Um, and it was just a very emotional like time time frame and everything happening back to back just confirmed the deep wounds that we have yet to heal in society and even in our own community. Yeah, because even when we were talking about it, you were saying every time you thought you'd processed to a certain point, then there'd be another layer to it mm -hmm. and more things to work through. And so then, yeah, the gaslighting being one aspect of it. And then when you, I think I'd seen you either tweet something or retweet something about in all the discourse with the stuff about Chris Rock and Will Smith, like Jada Pinkett Smith being completely left out of the conversation. And so, yeah. And I know for me, the way that my life has changed over the past few years, the people who are showing up in my social media feed and the people who we're speaking about it who are black 
just speaking in a way that let me know this is not my discourse to participate in, you know, uh, I need to sit this one out as someone who is white because, you know, I was just seeing where people, black people were saying like, we're having our own conversations about this. We're dealing with this, uh, in our communities. And so, yeah, I've just, I've learned that there's no way for someone who is not black to be able to critique the, like what was happening with all of it, you know, including, you know, when people started, when they would bring Jada Pinkett Smith in, it was usually to further vilify her or dehumanize her or demonize her. And so it's like, there's no way to talk about Will Smith or Jada Pinkett Smith or Chris Rock, like no way for someone who's not black to talk about them and not perpetuate anti-blackness. And I want to credit Tina Strawn and Jen Kinney with being the people who have first heard talk about that. And so, yeah, for me to just be like, okay, let me sit this out. So I don't perpetuate anti-blackness, but then, you know, we talked about this as well a couple of weeks ago, seeing men and in particular for my context, like white men posting things about quote, toxic femininity with Jada Pinkett Smith and just sitting there. And again, thinking you're white, so you can't talk about Jada Pinkett Smith without perpetuating any blackness. And also you're a man, like you can't talk about her as a black woman without perpetuating this patriarchy, you know? And so with the anti-racism conversation, you know, I've seen people say like for white people, you could spend your whole rest of your life going after white people and you don't have to have your voice in the discourse that is happening in black communities. And so I would say the same to white men, (laughs) you could spend your whole life going after other white men. You don't have to, like, I don't want to hear you talking about toxic femininity because there's no way for you to do that without perpetuating both. You know, when we're talking about JP Smith, you're going to perpetuate white supremacy and you're going to perpetuate patriarchy, you know, because again, the interconnectedness there. So that's just something, you know, we had talked about a couple of weeks ago that just isn't sitting well with me seeing these white men, <laughs> like you, there's just so many reasons for you to just not, <laughs> you know, yeah. just don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the audacity for me. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so that's kind of all on this national stage and what, what we're seeing play out publicly. And so you've already kind of talked about how that has impacted you personally. And so I was curious if you could share about when you first realized that as a black woman, you were the target of massage noir. Sure. Yeah. Like truth be told, like, I didn't even know that there was a name for it until like the last year and i i have to give credit to tiktok for this um because um it, it can be very informative and educational um at times and i i stay on black tiktok and um there are many people on that platform who do such a good job of providing nuance and just putting um eloquent words to the thoughts and emotions that I have, like people like Kayleen Easley, Double Minority, Pablo Dadon, Sunny Day Jones, Krista Arthur, Ren Starr. Um, so yeah, I didn't even realize that um, that culture um, had had a name to it. And creators like like those, um, they they really helped show me the light, if you will, and. You know, once that door was opened, it became very easy to look back over my life and in the culture and, and point it out um, just from seeing the way that people um, of all backgrounds, like just have adopted mannerisms um, of black women to like make a quick joke or um, there was this trend on TikTok a while back of people calling out gay white men and the black women that live inside of them. (laughs) 
and um, you know, I was able to start to sense like the unrequited hostility that white people tend to have when like speaking about either the merits or the faults of black women. And um, in all, I'm just, I'm glad I, I was able to put a name to these uh, vibes and ex experiences, but um, at the same time, it is just kind of depressing, just realizing how much of it is plastered within our culture and our everyday interactions. Yeah, and I feel like there's just, again, even with this, so many layers, you know, what you're bringing up with, the stuff on TikTok, but then I think, you know, digital blackface being something that I've just in the past few years learned about. So yeah. So for white people, it's like, you can find someone white doing the thing you want for your meme, you know? Uh, and, and yeah, and even like the, what was that? A Vogue magazine stuff about Kim Kardashian and her inner black woman and Kev on stage was like her inner what, you know, it's like just the violence of that. So violent. And there's even that Micah Bournet song. Oh man. I wish I could remember which one it was, but where, oh, where he says, um, who love black people more than they love rap. And so just that idea of so many white people, the appropriation within it, or the, all these ways of using black people for their purposes, but not because they care about black people. Cause it's like, if you care about people about black people, you're not going to do these things. And then in particular, the, the topic at hand here, the, 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 actions that devalue black women. You're just not going to do those things because they're telling you to stop. And so you'd stop. You wouldn't need to defend yourself. You wouldn't need to make excuses. You just stop because why do you need to keep doing it? You don't, you know? Yeah. So would you mind sharing a story about misogynoir that's been directed against you? Yeah. Um, and this one's um, a little heavy. Um, so in 2015, um, my then husband um, and I had arranged to meet with the four elders of the church that we were attending at the time. Um, there was a huge and very serious issue that had come up um, that I had journaled about and I even got like video evidence of because I knew how serious it was um, and I wanted to like have backup for when I finally revealed it but it ended up coming out in a big argument that we had and from the moment that it left my mouth as was custom for my ex he gaslit me um, told me I was journaling lies and he went on about how ridiculous it sounded. He never quite denied it, but he was just going off of the strength of how wild an accusation it was of me to have of him. And he ended up telling some people. And next thing we know, um, we got set up to meet with these elders and um, they were all men. And one of them was the lead pastor. Um so it, the time came for us to meet with them. And then um, they also all, they were all married. They all had wives, but none of the wives were there except for the one who was hosting um, in the house that we were going to have the meeting. And so when I walked in that house, the tension, it was, it was just so thick. Like you could cut it with a knife. And when I first walked in, like, those men were all giving me just cold and stone-faced looks. And so we sat down and um, the wife who was there, she took my kids to the back room so they wouldn't have to be present. And the conversation started and immediately they took his side and they all pretty much, they, they weren't there to hear both sides. They were pretty much there to make me apologize for accusing him. 
of such a thing. And the pastor, he went on to say, oh, man, I just I can't imagine how painful that is for you, brother. And at this point, none of them had inquired about our past history and our relationship. They were all just like so quick to take his side uh, because like in their minds, uh, I guess they saw him as this example of a man facing false accusations from a woman. And we just had to protect him. And had they cared to ask, um, they would have known that I had deep and legitimate trust issues with him, specifically around infidelity and, and, and how he had cheated on me. And, and, you know, they didn't ask me about any evidence that I had to back up my, uh, my accusations. They were only concerned about pressuring me to apologize for accusing him um, um, of those things that I had seen him do with my own eyes and I had documented. So to appease them while I was there, I really, I, I apologized, but I only apologized for how I brought it up, um, which was in the argument. And that was really the only thing that I could have maybe done different. I, I could see myself doing differently. Um, but it was just like the subject, like it was just a hard thing to talk about. And I really didn't know how or when it would have been a good time to ever really bring it up anyways. Um, so fast forward a few months later, and like by that point, like my ex-husband and I, we were no longer living together, but we were still married. Um, he had stopped attending church and the elders were made aware that he had cheated on me during our separation and I had tangible proof of it. And one day I was out walking with that same eldest wife who had took her, taken, taken my children that night. And during that walk, she had said to me, so are you going to apologize to him? Um, and she was referring to that incident. Um, and she just went on to say how serious it was and, you know, and how hard it must have been for my husband to have to go through that. And I just, I didn't give her an answer because I know that I was telling the truth and, but still like no one believed me. And to this day, I don't know if they ever did or if they ever will, but what those men, like they did to me, like how they dismissed me, how they immediately took my ex-husband's side without question. It just, it really shook me to my core even when the news broke out about him cheating on me and having intercourse with other women, like they were not there for me. Um, our meetings, like after the fact, um, they just really centered around my ex-husband. Um, they never asked me how I felt, what I was going through. Like they never addressed me um, specifically. It was um, just all about him. And when I needed help to get a divorce and have someone sign off on an affidavit, like, they made excuses and they just ended up not being there for me. Um, ultimately, I just, I ended up leaving that church um, not long after um, that conversation I had with the elder's wife. And, you know, I just, I hope one day that they will make amends with me. But at this point, um, I just feel like that's on them and it just kind of is what it is at this point. So, friend. Thank you for sharing that very hard and vulnerable story just from the onset of it for you to go like you're basically alone with four men plus your at the time your husband who is cheating on you and it's like you're outnumbered. And then, yes, as a black woman, everything, all of the biases and all of the misogynoir that they are bringing to that conversation and the stereotypes for centuries that are feeding into how they're viewing you and how they treated you and interacted with you and siding with him and being sympathetic with him, like that none of that ever should have happened. Um and all of the things afterward, like, I mean, the, the, you being expected to apologize and even the, uh, wife who was one of the elders wives is asking you if you had apologized to him and how 
hard that must've been for him. And yeah. And, and just seeing just the depth of devaluing of black women and what you had experienced. And I just, yeah, I just want to reiterate that everything they did was not okay. And that you should have been believed and you should have been supported. Thank you, friend. So I feel like we were already kind of going here, but one thing that I was thinking about was how the misogyny that black women face is different from what white women experience. And so if we could just talk for, um, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute about that, uh, you had some insights that I wanted you to be able to have some time to share. Yeah, just the conversation, um, and the frame, like this whole, everything that's going on with like Roe versus Wade. Um, and just kind of, as you just start to peel back the layers, you start to kind of get to the root of why um, they're trying to overturn it. Um, it it's, I mean, in, in, late, in, a, in a simple, simplistic terms, like they're trying to get white women to make more babies. And um but of course, um, we know that that decision, you know, it's not, it's not just, it's not just going to be that. It's going to impact um, people of color and, and, and black, black people black, a lot more than it will um, white women. And, you know, it's just, there's a lot of um, just discourse around that. And even just with the way that um, white men, white, 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 white women, white people have been responding to it versus, you know, black women, like, and how, you know, black women are like, we're kind of taking a, a back, a back seat to being on the front lines of, of trying to like, advocate for it. And white men and women are, you know, like this is a wake up call. We need to, you know, act now. Our futures are taken. Like we, we just been, we've been talking about this for for a long time. And you know, where have y'all been? <laughs> mm. All these other things have taken place. Um, and yeah, it's just, uh, it's just a poop show. <laughs> <laughs> and it. Somebody said something today, I think I saw it on TikTok, about how, like, even with the protests that they're holding, um, that white women are holding, like, you don't see the, the, the police responding in the same way. You don't see them there with tear gas and, and, and riot gear because, you know, they're not, they don't see white women as a threat. Whereas with protests with black people and then people of color you know you, you see the, the polar opposites and mm-hmm. you know it's very it's very telling of just just where where we are as mm-hmm. a society yeah that's so good because yeah white women who are choosing their whiteness will not be intersectional will not include black women they want to just focus on, you know, feminism and like Rachel Cargill talks about when white women want to just focus on being women and and freedom for quote women, then it's just white supremacy in heels. It's the same system, the same toxic white supremacy in it. And so Dr. Christina Cleveland in her book, God is a black woman she has a whole chapter talking about white women. And she talked about when after 45 was elected and going to the women's March. And she showed up there with some students from Duke Divinity School, I believe. And they were ready for protesting, serious protesting because of what is at stake. And she's like, and we look around and there are all these white women wearing pussy hats. That is what we see. And she said that she and her students 
are like, we came here for a real protest for some serious protests. And all y'all can do is sit around laughing and having fun with your pussy hats. And she said that they tried to get a chant started of black lives matter. And all these white women who would say they're these liberal feminists didn't join the chant. Mm. Right. And so for all the talk of white feminism being about female liberation, if it's not liberation for all women, then it's not, it's not true feminism. Right. And you, I think even when we talked about reparations, maybe in that episode, when we talked about white privilege, I think came up in that conversation and how like poor white people will try to say that white privilege doesn't exist, citing their poverty as the reason, right? But I think it was through Be the Bridge, I read something, and I wish I could remember who to credit this for, but the idea of, yes, being a poor white person will bring obstacles and barriers, but you can know that your skin color isn't a reason for that. <laughs> isn't a reason for the obstacles. And so I feel like the same with this conversation when we're talking about the patriarchy is that I, as a white woman, even like, I feel like both can be true. And oh my goodness, like I should pull this quote up, uh, this tweet from Joe Lumen on Twitter. So I don't ruin it, but basically Joe Lumen talked about how white women have always been the prized possession of patriarchy and they've, they don't know what it's like to never be protected. And so there's a white woman in the comments trying to twist Joe Lumen's words into saying like, well, you're saying that we've never been abused. And it's like, that's not what she was saying. She was like, you don't know what it's like to never be protected. So I can, I can say, yes, the patriarchy has harmed me. I have been harmed at the hands of men. And being a white woman has also afforded me more protection than black women receive. Both are true, right? Yes. The patriarchy is harming me, but because I am a white woman, I know it's not because I'm, I'm not being harmed because of the color of my skin. Right. And there's a whole other layer that especially black women are dealing with, but really like white supremacy and the patriarchy together fetishize you know, Asian women, Asian American women, uh, you know, Latinx community and uh, indigenous women and like all these people get fetishized under the umbrella of white supremacy and the, the patriarchy. So yeah, I, I just keep thinking about that, right? Like that, what I experience I'm not diminishing what white women experience with misogyny or with patriarchy, but to see how let's, let's get outside of ourselves. Let's move past stopping at quote, liberating white women. And like you were bringing up with the Roe v. Wade and all these things and look at all the people who are literally like during the women's marches in, you know, the, when white women were trying to get the right to vote in 1920, right. Is when they got the right to vote and seeing how they would make the black feminists march at the back. Right. So it's like from the beginning of feminism in this country, it's been about white women and them leaving out all these powerful voices that were fighting for liberation, not just as women, but as black people. So yeah. Okay. We spent longer on that. I don't want white women to be the focus of this conversation in any way. So we can move on from white women. <laughs> so yeah, but I just thought that was just really important to, to reiterate and drive home for white women. But yeah. So, so Quena, how has misogynoir impacted you and other black women that, you know, and I know you've, you've talked about this some, but I didn't know if there's anything else you wanted to say there. Well, it, it makes me it makes me think about my mom and the things I've seen her go through with my own eyes, uh, the things she shared with me one-on-one. 
I think about my aunties. I think about my cousins. I think about all the black women I've come to know in this life. And for most of them, I just, I see a common thread in, in all of their stories and often at the center of their hardships. And that's misogynoir. Um, and misogyny with men undervaluing them, treating them as disposable, treating them like maids and sex objects being verbally abusive to them, um, the making decisions without their input, uh, cheating on them, gaslighting them, um, not loving them in their love language, um, not giving them as much attention because their homeboys and work take priority. Um, them initially not being uh, treated and respected as equal partners. Um, Thankfully for many of us, we we have been able to like eventually like find our power and, and assert healthy boundaries and like leave toxic situations. But for some of us, um, and, and for some of us, you know, they may have chosen to stay, but they have refused to be um, doormats. And I, and I love that too. Um, but then there are still others of us who, you know, we haven't quite found, haven't quite found our way. And um, my hope is that with our culture having an influx of knowledge and there being more therapeutic safe spaces that they too will be able to find their voice and to find safer paths. Um, and like the things I've experienced about marriage and music and in the music industry and in medical facilities and school systems, they often just track back to misogynoir and misogyny. Like um, things I've seen happen to my own children. Um, there was one time when both of my youngest children, a girl and a boy, they, they were sick and they required a trip to the ER. They both had high breathing rates and wheezing and congestion and fevers. And um, the, the treatment at home that I was giving them was just ineffective and they were just getting worse by the hour. So I took them both into the ER and they went in for the exact same reason. And I watched how the nurses and the doctors, how they treated my son versus how they treated my daughter. Um, my son got a breathing treatment, fever medicine, and some oral steroids, I believe. My daughter got fever medicine and discharge paperwork. Um, and I ended up um, taking her back to the ER two more times within about a week's time span. And the last time that we went there, she was very, very ill. Um, and my son, he had, he had, he had started getting better. Um, but yeah, she was, she was very, very ill, like literally breathing like one breath per second. And her heart rate was like super fast. And they finally decided to test her because in the other two instances before this, like they didn't run any tests on her. They didn't like give her any x-rays or anything like that. And it turned out that she had pneumonia and RSV and then something else I can't remember. And they finally gave her the meds that she needed. And, you know, the sad thing is like, there've been a few other instances where I've taken both her and him to the ER and they were treated the same way and my my son would get better and more extensive treatment than my daughter and it was just unbelievable to witness with my eyes like even at that age even like at that pediatric level like just the differences in how they were being treated um so if anything misogynoir just has just made me very distrusting of a lot of systems yeah i mean understandably Again, we talked about this in one of our other episodes, maybe in all of our episodes, <laughs> but yeah, just like the different obstacles that you're facing as a black woman, but then to see how, what you've seen in your uh, family members who are adult women, but also 
tracing all of that down to stemming with from how we view and treat black girls and just the weight of that and and again how it's just rooted in these century long lies like black people don't feel pain and the way that black women and black girls were sexualized and brutalized and all those things continue to shape how even present day the medical institution how these doctors and nurses were treating your little girl it's just heartbreaking and infuriating at the same time and it's another just like what shouldn't have happened in the church it's another this shouldn't have happened this should not have happened yeah so with all of that background that we've talked about how did you in the past view yourself as a black woman. I know you have some songs about this and we've had conversations. So yeah. How did you view yourself in the past as a black woman? So my views have definitely have varied over the years. Um, for the first 25 years of my life, I believed wholeheartedly that I shouldn't see color or try to distinguish myself as anything other than a human being who should treat other human beings well. And being that I was a Christian and very legalistic at that time, I had actually believed that it was a form of idolatry to exalt things such as black excellence, because I thought hmm, only God is supposed to get praise. So I, I can't do that. So I, I shied away from like that kind of language and I subsequently just blocked myself from reverencing the beauty of things in Black culture um, on its own merits, like Black care, Black love, and Black representation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously that's very different now. So yeah, how do you view yourself now as a Black woman? How did those changes come about? What was that journey like for you? I would say what what caused all of that um, like anti-blackness that I had adopted to unravel um, was uh, w- when some high profile shootings of unarmed black people had started to <clears throat> appear on the media. I think this was like 2015, 2016-ish. Um, and from there, like my views started to expand and shift, like, cause those shootings, they just, they broke me. It just, it, it broke me just seeing people who look like me in so much pain, um, and realizing that I too am a part of that community. Like, these are my people. Why, why don't I care? Um, why, why have I fought so hard to distance myself from that? Um, so yeah, like I started to just open my eyes, just started to open up more and then to see more and my view started to expand and shift. And I was able to see and acknowledge the melanin that I was born with and just get out of that bubble that I wrapped myself in to protect myself from learning about and celebrating other cultures, um, especially my own. And I just, I began seeing myself as worthy and valuable. And, you know, also being a black woman, seeing that I had some flavor that, no, my hair is not unkempt and unmanageable, but it is beautiful and versatile. And no, I don't have to tone down my AAVE when I'm outside in a home or in the church or, <laughs> sorry, excuse me, <clears throat> or at a place of business, but seeing my language and inflections as whole, just the way they are. Um, or, you know, me just recognizing that our music is dope as hell and just, realizing that black people are the architects of much of what we see today in music, such as 
jazz and rock and roll, R&B, country music, techno, like there's just so many genres that we have um, created um, that goes uncredited. And it's just, it's no wonder why everybody wants to copy it. Like, cause you know, we're awesome. <laughs> and it's okay to acknowledge that. And like, as a black woman, I just, I now see myself as whole, valuable, unique, and powerful. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I can just say that being a witness and bearing witness to your journey has been such a gift just watching you live more and more to the fullness of who you are so thank you for letting me be a part of your journey and I just really am grateful for getting sort of front row seats in so many ways uh to to your journey and it just makes me so happy I'm just smiling so big right now yeah I'm smiling too (laughs) yeah okay so our last question before we get to our uh, wrap-up questions. What message do you have for anyone who diminishes or dismisses the misogynoir that's been on display against Jada Pinkett Smith and Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson? I would say listen to Black women. Listen to Black women. Like if you ever wanted to see an example of just what we deal with on a regular basis, like you have these two great examples with Judge Kentanji uh, Brown Jackson and Jada Pickett. And if that still causes you to shrug, then it, it, it will be much harder to see it on an everyday level. There are, there are layers to what we witnessed in if you don't employ yourself to get to the root of things and you're going to miss it every single time, you're not going to be able to see how a person can praise a black woman in one breath and devalue her at the same time. You will be unable to see how a white Supreme court nominee with um, a few qualifications can sail through a hearing with little apprehension from Republicans about those lacking qualifications, but how those same Republicans can relentlessly badger a Black woman nominee with two to three more times those qualifications. Um, You will miss how Jada has been a target of Chris Rock's jokes spanning over two decades and and how important and and valued hair is to Black women. Um, If you find yourself finally able to see these things one day, I implore you to take this knowledge and apply it to your everyday life. Whether you encounter Black women um, in your family, at your job, at your church, uh, at your kids' school, um, or if you just see a Black woman in public, just take the time to honor them, encourage them where they are, join them in their journeys or cheerlead them from the sidelines, protect them, protect us, create safer spaces for us to be able to vent, share, cry, thrive, and rest. That's so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, the listen to Black women, the believe Black women, right? And then just the insight there that you pointed out of, if you're dismissing it and diminishing it on this national stage, you're going to miss it in all the personal and private ways that it's happening around us so yeah that was all just so much to sit with so thank you for that yeah so these final questions are ones that i'm borrowing from tasha hunter and they're the questions she asks her guests on her podcast when we speak to close out their conversation and i love these questions so who or what inspires you sequena mm-hmm. Well, I thought long and hard, and I would say, I'd have to say you, Nikki. Um, You are bold, you are gentle, you are full of wisdom and insight, you are giving, assertive, kind, and 
this unapologetically yourself. And you inspired me to be a better mom and a better person. And I just want to take this time to honor you and to give you your flowers because you absolutely deserve them. My friend, I wasn't ready at all. And I could say the same for you. So thank you for sharpening me, for bearing with me, for cheering me on. And again, it's just such a joy and a gift to be on this journey with you. So thank you. You inspire me as well. Well, who or what makes you laugh, friend? Well, (sighs) I'm trying not to try not to cry. Okay. Um, So at the top of my list for people who make me laugh is definitely Quinta Brunson. Um, I, I loved seeing her in Black Lady Sketcha. And now she's branched off and um, created Abbott Elementary. And I just, I love her style of writing and comedy. And she really is just um, truly a joy to watch. Um, so she's, she's super dope. Yes, love Abbott Elementary. Love it. Oh, so good. Uh, well, what song or type of music gets you dancing? Mm. I'd say the 2000s-ish, um, like, rap and R&B, like, Shanti and Mario and Neo and people from that era. Um, and really, like, any kind of cookout music will usually do it for me. So. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, our last question before we, our time together is over is where can people find you on social media to stay up to date on your work? Cause I know you mentioned Bandy, Bandy's notebook volume one, and it's release in the near future. And so, yeah, where can people find you and follow you? So definitely my website um, is a good place to start. Bandy's notebook.net. Um, you can kind of get the rundown of more about who I am and um, some of my um, journey uh, as a queer Christian. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at Bandy the Nomad. And you can find me on my band camp. Um, I promise this is a coincidence, but it's bandy bandcamp.com. <laughs> and then my Twitter, um, though my Twitter is kind of all over the place, but you can find me at Murray Sequena. And then lastly, my TikTok, which also is all over the place, but you could find me at Bandy the Nomad on TikTok. Awesome. I will put it all in the show notes so people can go follow you and just be able to, yeah, keep up to date and just see all the things that you have going on and where you're headed. So yeah, thank you so much, Sequina, for taking the time to talk with me tonight and for your vulnerability. And I just, I don't take it lightly that you were honest and vulnerable and bringing all of who you are to this conversation and trusting me to, to share the things that you shared. So I enjoyed our conversation as always. And I'm just so grateful for you, friend. Same here. Um, thank you for having me. Um, this was, this was good. Thank you so much for listening to broadening the narrative. Follow me on Instagram at broadening the narrative. If you haven't yet, please rate, review, and follow the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Your engagement helps others find the show. If you like what you heard today, share it with a friend and on your social media. I really think that little by little, person by person, we can broaden the narrative. My memoir, Ask Familiar's Family, is now available to purchase through my website at NikkiPappas.com. Ask Familiar's Family explores how I was groomed for toxic relationships and religion and how I got out. And I know I'm not the only one. 
So head to my website to buy a copy for yourself and anyone else who is hurting and healing from toxic relationships and religion. The music for this season was created by Joshua Pappas, my oldest child. We worked together using the Chrome Music Lab song maker and had so much fun. I also want to thank Daniel Boland for creating the episode graphic. You can access the Broadening the Narrative blog and transcripts for podcast episodes as they become available by visiting my website. Until next time, grace and peace, friends.